This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. We're going to try this out as an experiment. Uh, We are halfway through the regenerative design course that I'm organizing here at the Green Rebel Farm, and I'm here with a number of the participants who voiced an interest in interviewing me to save me from a whole bunch of extra editing that I'm not prepared for to release the episode that would otherwise come out this week. I think that gets us caught up. Uh, Who is part of this group? Go ahead and introduce yourselves in whatever order you would like. Uh, I'm Shan. Yep. A little bit more? Stage five, That's know. okay. From South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah you and I have been in touch for a while. That is correct. So, yeah, Oliver, you have been a pretty significant part of my journey so far. And, yeah. My name is Patrick. I'm from London. And I'm really, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. And I'm really excited about the potential of changing the food system to create a better future for us. Nice. Who else is going to speak on this? There's a bunch of people sitting here. Yeah, yeah. yeah there we go. Um, half of the two zeetjes. And uh, me and my wife Irma, we cycled all the way to the Green Rebel, where we are right now. And um, I'm very enthusiastic on the, uh, on the course. I'm Dutch. You, you will hear it directly, I think. <laughs> but I'll do my best to hide it. <laughs> nice. Okay. So the idea here is that you guys are going to turn the microphone around on me today and I have no idea what these questions are that you've prepared. Uh, So we're just going to roll with it. Take it away, whoever wants to start. All right, so what is the holistic context plan and why do you recommend it for people who maybe want to buy land or have plans for, for food growing? All right, so... Patrick is talking about holistic management, a a framework for managing complexity that was originated by Alan Savory and the Savory Institute. And it's something that I use in this course on regenerative design because it's a really good way of starting to understand the direction and managing difficult decisions that you're inevitably going to have to make when you're dealing with the complexity of living systems. And... It's something that I often start the course on because it helps you get in touch with things that are really important to you, evaluate your own value system. And if you're making these decisions with a larger group outside of yourself, whether it's a couple or a family or an organization, a business, whatever, it helps you to get on the same page as to what it is that's truly important to you and what you're willing to do in order to achieve that. And this has a lot of implications for designing for regenerative systems out on the land, but can just as easily be applied to anything in your life, whether it's your personal finances and and how you manage your relationship with people or how you develop a business. All of this is useful to to have a general understanding within the people who are, uh, are given the ability to make decisions for the organization. So that you're on the same page so that you agree with with what it is that you're trying to accomplish because otherwise you could just as easily be moving or putting your efforts into things that diverge from one another and that can break up the cohesiveness and and cause things to fail. Um, I have been through the full holistic management training. I haven't finished a lot of my test work to be a professional uh, accredited professional 
with the Savory Institute, partly because I still have some doubts as to whether or not that's really where I want to put all of my energies. But I've gotten a lot of value out of the system for managing complexity because when you're, when you're pushed to think holistically, there's just so many pieces of data and information both from the land but also the complexities of, of our interpersonal workings, the difficulties and, and nuances of the relationships both with individuals and with communities. And it's just a lot to take in. And to have this as a framework to help you make difficult decisions, I found extremely useful. And I've relied on it time and time again when working with clients, when doing designs increasingly for my own property. And uh, it's something that I think is is helpful regardless of what stage of this process that you're in, whether you're completely new to it and getting clear about some things that are important in your life and what it is you want to achieve in the future. But also even if you've been in a long-term relationship or been in a part of a business for a long time or maybe have even lived on the same piece of land for a long time, often these questions haven't been asked or we're not used to answering them. And to use it as a way to to analyze the things that that unite us and that can help us to, to work in synchronicity towards a common goal is always useful. And so that's, that's why I put emphasis on it in this course. Uh, so besides the podcast, what else are you doing with your time? And could you tell us a little bit about the services that you offer? Oh boy. Thank you, Shan. <laughs> I'll go straight into my full advertisement pitch. <laughs> no, uh, I have a lot of projects going on. And some of these I've mentioned on previous episodes. I have the closest thing to a day job that I've had in a really long time. I work with a company called Climate Farmers that is working to scale regenerative agriculture here on the continent of Europe with a very talented and wonderful team that does things that are way beyond my skill set, especially on the technological side of putting together high-value carbon credits that measure much more than carbon, but a lot of ecosystem services that are dependent on the way that we manage farmland. And... Uh, help to bring financial instruments into facilitating people's transition towards regenerative management, which is difficult enough in itself, and it's very hard to find financing for. So I'm I'm proud to work with that organization. I work as a a transition facilitator. So farmers in our network uh, come to us looking for solutions to specific problems, and I get a lot of joy in being able to connect them with other people who can help them, sometimes being able to to help them directly myself or share educational resources or other forms of support within our network and also managing a community that facilitates their ability to connect with peers and share ideas and solutions from their own experience which is often difficult to do especially in the European context because there's so many different cultures and languages that make communication across these the borders of of this continent harder than perhaps in the United States or in Australia where there's more of a common culture and and language that unites them. Uh, That takes up a lot of the time of my week. I also work with a number of private clients that have come to me either through my online courses or through the podcast looking for assistance in developing their own regenerative projects. Uh, Mostly I focus my time in those who have projects fairly near to where I work because it's really important for me to be able to go out and visit them in person. There's a connection and a level of data and information that just cannot be gathered entirely online. So to be able to make uh, land assessments and reports and guide them through the decision-making process, it's really nice that many of them are close enough that I can visit semi-regularly 
and help them with observations that I can make directly on the land. Let's see, this podcast is one of the most regular things that I've been doing for six years now. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that I go back and forth on. Like I really love having the interviews and the connections with all the wonderful people who've inspired me and that I've learned from over the years. But also it takes a bit of time. And though I have some sponsors and it brings in a little bit of income, sometimes there are weeks where it's just like, oh goodness, I have to put out another episode, even if I enjoyed doing the interview. Um, but so I'm, I'm finding new ways to keep this exciting after all this time and, and still make it something that's challenging and fun for me. Let's see. Uh, I also regularly take other courses to advance my own professional skills. I'm in one with uh, water stories right now, uh, expanding my ability to create water designs and uh, help to rehydrate landscapes, something I'm really passionate about. And yeah, I'm also working to make more online courses and bring in people who can't necessarily travel to come to courses like this one or afford to have someone dedicate their time to specifically coach them on their own projects and can still find ways to access some of the resources and the information that I've been able to collect through my networks and all of this stuff I'm really passionate about. And I'm right now as well on the cusp of finally getting my own property. Myself and my partner have put down payment on a property that we're hoping to close <laughs> the financing for this upcoming week. And it's been a long journey. There's been a lot of roadblocks in the process, but it looks like it might finally go through. I'm actually even a little bit nervous to talk about this already because it's been so long in the making and so many times we thought it wasn't going to work out. But if we do end up going through with it, there's going to be a whole lot of content and sharing through the process of developing that in the upcoming months. So yeah, that's a, that's a good summary of the main things that take up my time right now. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, would you be willing to discuss perhaps like the vision that you have for your property going forward? Oh man, this is deep. So because we've had such a long journey in figuring out whether we can get the financing for this place or not, I've had a lot of time to dream and to gather data and to do designs and connect with people in my network to give me new ideas. Um, it's a really unique property. Uh, the building itself is over a thousand years old, at least the core of it. And it used to be a mill that's right on the edge of a river. Uh, if people follow my Instagram account, they've probably seen some of the videos that I've put out uh, showing the property a little bit. There's a lot more to come. And it's been added on to, it's kind of a Franken building. Uh, some additions happened a couple hundred years ago. Some of them happened in the last couple of decades as they made expansions. It was later used as a hostel for people traveling in between two regional cities of the area, trading goods, back before there was a highway that connected it. And they used to do a lot of things on uh, the backs of donkeys, bringing their goods back and forth. There's even some pictures of that that I've been able to uncover. And then it was used as a hostel and restaurant. Hostel, not necessarily being a youth hostel, but like a, a less formal hotel. So it's actually a lot bigger than what my partner and I need for our own living, but we're thinking of it more as a business investment and uh, hoping to develop it as an educational center because this is the type of stuff that I'm really passionate about and so is my partner. And then the landscape itself is this whole other thing. There's three hectares altogether. Many of them are disconnected because the land was parceled out and redistributed among family members over time. And the purchase kind of reconnects a number that have, have been uh, discontinuous. So 
some of them are walking distance a little bit further away and some of them are connected. It's, it's kind of a hodgepodge of, of different micro ecosystems. Um, and of course, because there's a river that runs right through the middle, a big portion is not only uh, floodplain, but riparian zone. And if anybody knows about those ecosystems, they're really important for reducing erosion. And there's a lot of biodiversity that happens on the edge of water bodies and uh, the soil profiles and the wildlife that comes out from those. And it's been damaged recently from a big flooding event that happened back in 2020. And so one of the things that I've been learning a lot about is to the extent that it's been damaged and has been eroded along the banks and how it is naturally recovering over these last two years as native vegetation grows back, but so does some vegetation that is considered invasive and that the, the area regulatory bodies that are connected with the natural park that it's on the edge of are, are working to actively control, removing specifically Robinia, which is um, uh, black locust, is a common name in English, and it's a nitrogen-fixing leguminous tree that grows really vigorously along these types of borders. And um, yeah, it's, it's been really cool to learn about that, but also the, the cultural context of the area, which has a really long history of not only land use, but also uh, different conquering and imperial bodies that have owned that land over different periods of time. Everything from the Romans, who built the original structure of the mill, and the bridge that is kind of the icon of the town that is connected to the house uh, through, yeah, all different uh, wars and conflicted areas that it has been a part of. It's changed names a few times. I mean, these old properties are just uh, endless rabbit holes of information and stories. And I've had such... Uh, a wonderful time uncovering this almost like a detective to learn the story of this place and, and find how I can interact with it and be a part of its continued story into the future and and coax its highest potential out of out of the years to come. You recently did a Instagram post mentioning the importance of knowing your property deal breakers. Mm. Curious what are your property deal breakers? <laughs> Yeah, I made a really quick post about four things that I think everyone should consider before uh, looking for property and things that are important to consider that could be deal breakers, whether or not it's appropriate for you to, to invest in. Um, I also mentioned, <laughs> as an example, if your property is within a floodplain, you should get out of there. Well, <laughs> the land on which I'm moving to is part of a floodplain. Fortunately, the house itself is very well protected from the floodplain. And the recent flood that came through there was a testament to that. It was nowhere near damaging the building. Uh, so that gives me some confidence. But I have seen some pretty harrowing video footage from the neighbor of when that flood moved through and just how much it widened and how much it eroded out the the channelized um, uh, river body that, that goes through there and how much sand and sediment it deposited as it receded. It's, it's really wild to observe. I guess, so deal breakers are something that are highly personal, right? Some aspects are more important to others um, and don't apply to the general public, but of course, security risks are <laughs> pretty 
pretty universal. If, if there's a factor on your land or, or the, the property that you're considering or the house, whether or not you're trying to buy land or not, that could really compromise the safety and the security of living there, you're never going to feel at home if you're constantly nervous, whether that is like a high crime rate or uh, let's say a risk of natural disaster. It's in an area, which is why I gave the example of a floodplain. There's so many developments that are within areas that are extremely prone to natural disasters and that's a poor investment over time you know that's not going to get better as climate extremes exacerbate so knowing those ahead of time and keeping them in mind even though you fall in love with just how beautiful the place is and how lush the vegetation is or whatever the potential you can foresee in the place might be knowing your deal breakers is really important because it can bring you back down to earth and make you make some more logical decisions that will make you spend your money a little more wisely but we're in Southern Europe here, yep. and it's going to get hotter and drier, Indeed. and harsher conditions for growing food. Um, how does that play into your thinking about settling down here, and, and what sort of activities you'll be doing? Yeah. Um, some areas are more susceptible to those types of risks than others. Like where we are right now is already a pretty dry region. We're in the southwestern area of Catalonia near the Delta de Ebra, uh, if anybody knows this region. And it's traditionally a pretty dry area. I think the average is around 400 millimeters of rain per year, and that can fluctuate wildly by seasons. So this is a pretty brittle climate. It's, it's been susceptible to drought and, and drying conditions for a long time. Of course, climate change is exacerbating that. There's a certain degree to which I feel confident that I have the skill set and the competency to make the most of whatever ecology that I move into. But I also considered that significantly when I was looking at assessing properties with my, with my partner. And considering that it is so close to a Mediterranean climate, it is actually part of a more maritime climate because it is a higher elevation in a densely wooded area in kind of a low mountain range in central eastern Catalonia. Um, so it's in a little pocket of a valley, which makes sense because there's a river running right through it in the mountains. And being in a lowlands, it is susceptible to some very cold temperatures that the rest of Catalonia mostly doesn't experience, getting down to minus 10 last year, I observed. And I've heard even as low as minus 19 one time which is not insignificant. I, I mean, even last year, I saw a portion of the waterfall that is right next to the house freeze solid. That'll put, put a little respect in you. And I've seen like the, the degraded pasture and the floodplain all covered in frost. And because it's in this low area, um, the sun doesn't hit it for a long time. And closer into the north side of the mountains on the, on the opposite end of the river, uh, keeps it shaded throughout much of the day and the sun goes down pretty early in the winter time too. You start to lose direct sunlight like around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon already. And that you know makes it even colder than it would be if you were just further up the south side of the, of the mountain on, on the opposite end. So it's definitely a little microclimate and it's something that I need to make design decisions and planting choices to accommodate because that's not something that I can change. However, one thing that it does have is a lot of water. <laughs> and in an area that is quickly drying out and the hydrology has been mismanaged for a long time, 
Yes, of course, there are things that you can do to capture water and retain water on the landscape, but it's also pretty nice if there's two mountain springs that feed directly to the house. That's some redundancy that is hard to beat, to say nothing of the year-long river that runs right in front of the property. Worst case scenario, I have to, like, we lose power or something, and I have to go down to the river and, and bring it by buckets. There are people who have to do that and walk miles or kilometers to the nearest water source. Uh, I can drop a bucket from our porch and hit water in the river in front. That's a piece of security that I definitely valued when we were looking at the property. Yeah. Right. So it sounds like your property and your property's microclimate are pretty, uh, pretty set. Like you have a lot of water. Yeah. For the wider region, what? What do you want to see or what sort of collaborations do you think would make the whole region more resilient to, to climate change? Yeah, um, so this is tricky because there's a lot of diversity even in a small section of Spain as Catalonia is. There's a wide diversity of geology, everything from the high Pyrenees up in the northwest and the coastal area all along the southeastern coast uh, and, and a whole lot of things in between. There's plains kind of in the western central area. There's three mountain ranges, including the coastal area and the Costa Brava on the northeast side. The central mountains are the pre-littoral range of which our new house is going to be nestled in. And then, of course, you get into the Pyrenees there, too. So. Catalonia is not one thing, and each one of those ecosystems and geologies needs to be managed according to the most appropriate way to, to coax a higher capacity of life for each of those. So they need to be kind of looked at as different bioregions and different strategies applied to each of them. Now, here where we are in Miravet at the Green Rebel Farm for this course, um, we are not at high elevation, but you can see mountains around us and we're quite up above the coast for sure. I can't remember the exact elevation here. We've got it written down somewhere else. Yeah. It's 250? Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and so like sea level rise is not an issue here. However, in Barcelona, it definitely is. Um, and there need to be appropriate reactions and planning for each of those things. Um, Soils are poor and highly alkaline because there's a lot of limestone in this area and they've been depleted for a really long time because of intensive management for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so that just needs to be taken to, into account. Like there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done before we can even talk about regeneration. Like we need to get back to zero. This place has been uh, extorted for a really long time. And I, and from, from the, experience, uh, the experience that I've built up, tend to start at, at a watershed level and work on the hydrology of a landscape because water is the life force that makes everything else possible. And if you can hold water in the landscape and even out its distribution throughout the dry seasons in these intense climates, then all sorts of new opportunities arise. You know, From there, you can assess those opportunities, look into either planting woody perennials, things that can withstand the droughts and some of the, the changes that are, are already on the way. Um, but that's how I look at it first. Like, those are the, the positive actions that can be done to start to reestablish the capacity for life in this region. There's also another way to look at it, which is the current practices that are 
actively degrading the land and which of those we should stop right away. Uh, the obvious one is the constant tillage of topsoil. You see it everywhere around here. In fact, this little farm, even though it is still quite degraded and has only been managed for a little while, already shows signs of life that the neighboring properties, literally like across uh, a small little footpath, look like moonscapes with some trees in them. They're tilled to death and it's all exposed dusty soil that with the slightest breeze starts to go up into the atmosphere and goodness knows when it starts to rain, it just shears off the top and ends up in the waterways. That would be a good thing to stop doing, uh, especially if we want to continue to hold water on the landscape and, and rehydrate this area, uh, revegetate it. I mean, at a certain point, we're just talking about damage control, and yet it's still a very common practice that is common and culturally appropriate uh, by, the, by the industrial forces that continue to incentivize the mass production of commodity crops and monoculture cultivation of those. So it's tricky. It needs to be looked at at a systemic level because if we just tell people immediately, you can't till your fields anymore, they don't necessarily have either the educational or the financial resources to make big management changes overnight. And as much as this is a long-term damaging practice, there are real reasons for why they do this. And, and not all of them are based on sound science, but if you've done this your entire time and this is the only way you really understand about how to manage the land that you perhaps inherited or invested in, it doesn't just shift overnight. And I have a lot of compassion for that because farmers, land managers in general, are often hanging by a thread economically and are really stressed to keep this viable and to provide for their families. And if you come from sort of a top-down effort at controlling what they do and forcing their hand into things, it's only going to breed resentment. It's not going to result in an, an embracing of, of new practices. So, you know, it's, it's not easy. I have a lot of respect for the necessary nuances and changes to make this happen at a systemic level. During the course that we had, that we discussed the holistic approach. Yeah. Um, we experienced that it's like a, a momentum at this moment. Um, we just talked a little about your actual new program, project. Yeah. I'm wondering what, how do you envision yourself in 20 years? So what are you doing at that moment or what, is, what do you envision there? Mm. 20 years is really hard for me to think of uh, in, in that terms. Like I know how much I have changed and have changed my mind and priorities in the previous 20 years. I can only imagine what type of person I'm going to be in the next 20, you know. Um, gosh, I would hope that I'm still with the same partner that I have and the same land that we're just about to move on to and that my family is all well. But, you know, if those circumstances change, it's very hard to see in that kind of time scale. Um, so I guess this is more of a question about hope, right? Because it's very difficult to plan anything concretely given the variables that can come up in those timeframes. I would hope that I am spending as much time as possible with my family, maybe even having them uh, moved on to the property with me. Who knows, maybe my, my folks would embrace the idea of retiring to, to this property with us and joining us in, in that journey. Mm. 
It's unlikely that my brothers and sisters would do that. They have very active and demanding lives in their respective uh, countries where they live. My three brothers are still in the States. My sister and her husband are in Kuwait with their daughters. But one of the motivations for getting a larger property than my partner and I need for ourselves is that my sister voiced the interest in coming and spending all of their vacations with us. And I would hope that that's something that continues. I mean, goodness, in 20 years... Her youngest daughter will be 21, so I don't know that she's going to want to come and hang out with her old uncle and his goofy farm in 20, 20 years, but how cool would that be if she did? She will. <laughs> uh, very different different lives by then, and I mean, goodness knows if uh, the same economic structures and travel infrastructure will still exist or not. That will definitely di- dictate the possibilities, but um, I mean, who knows if... if What I'm thinking about doing and implementing on the land comes to fruition. It'll be quite mature in 20 years. Like uh, a dense agroforestry system could be a beautiful example of what is possible in those sandy, acidic soils that I'm going to be managing uh, as dense as the forest is around it. Um, And hopefully I'll have had some positive impact on that watershed and care for the riparian zone of that river keeping it clean and clear, improving the biodiversity, making it more resilient by vegetating that, that space. And gosh, one of my biggest hopes is that I will have formed much closer bonds with that community and be an integral part of uh, the support network there that people could rely on me. And goodness knows, I hope that my Catalan gets up to speed <laughs> in 20 years. I got to start taking more more active classes. It's one of my biggest challenges because I, I speak Spanish, yeah. but Catalan's the next hurdle. And it's a region of Spain that is very proud of their cultural heritage and very protective of their language. And I really respect that. And I hope to adequately assimilate into that, that community. Perfect. Thank you. Do you have anything or any vision, perhaps, of what you would most like to achieve professionally in your life? So, professionally? Yeah. Mm. That's a tricky one because I'm still in denial that I have to work <laughs> and have a job <laughs> to get through all of this. I'm doing my best not to. <laughs> like, if I really had it my... Like, okay, so put it this way. If I am professionally successful... What time, time frame am I looking at here? Do I get 20 ten, years again? 10 years. 10 years. Oh, I better get to work. Like what, does success, <laughs> what does success in 10 years' time look like? Uh, success in 10 years, man. Professionally. Professionally. Okay, professionally. Because I was going to say something totally different. Professionally. Um, that the idea that I have for creating this property into... I don't want to say a demonstration site because I'm not trying to get people to, to copy what I do, but maybe um, disseminate some cool ideas that people can build upon and adapt to their own context. Um, I, I hope that our place becomes a welcoming space for learning and innovation in this very broad concept of, of regeneration and that I can continue to welcome incredible minds who are advancing this in ways that I can only conceptually understand because there's opportunities here for advancing it in the political sphere, in the community organizing sphere, in the child education sphere, and on and on and on. And none of these things do I have any 
competency or specialization in. But if, if that could be something that is an economic driver that at least pays my mortgage so I don't have to do a bunch of things that I don't really enjoy, that would be awesome. Um, and, and that a lot of us could flourish from that effort. Uh, I hope that it's not revolving around or dependent on me for it to succeed because I don't want the responsibility of potentially being that bottleneck that things can't move past, but rather that it's open and people can bring their skills, their knowledge, their inspiration through there. And that there's at least enough economic flow uh, rather than sequestration, like, you know, hoarding, um, that a lot of people can benefit and I can comfortably and safely pay at least my necessary bills while I increasingly spend my time looking after animals and tending to my garden and, and taking care of my trees, but mostly in, in the larger effort of providing for my family, my community. Yeah. So it's not, it's not so much tethered to uh, doing certain projects or getting a certain amount of clients or certainly not earning a certain amount. Um, but not having to worry economically, I think, is at the core of, of economic success to me rather than this idea of success or abundance monetarily. Just not having to stress about it would be nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, in terms of the work you're doing at present, um, or perhaps life in general, what would you like more of? And in turn, what would you like there to be less of in terms of how you spend your time? Mm, less Zoom calls. Okay. Gosh, there's too many of those these days. Because the company that I work with, as much as I really love the people that I work with, and I, I generally, uh, genuinely feel motivated to, to do the work and, and to help to connect people uh, in the regenerative ag space around Europe, uh, there's, it's a poor substitute for interacting with people in real life. And so I guess the flip side of that is that I get to do more events like this where people like you who are interested in the, the topics that I talk about and teach about are drawn to come and participate and co-create beautiful projects and incredible designs and share your own knowledge and expertise with me, which helps to expand my own perspective on this, this concept. I really do derive uh, satisfaction and energy from the personal interactions. Sometimes I get a little bit burnt out when there's a lot of people and I need to retreat and recharge a little bit by myself, but I, I really love the, the more intimate conversations, getting to know people on a deeper level and connect over some of these ideas and concepts that we've been exploring on this course and seeing what, especially what you guys do with it and how you interpret this information and what you eventually end up doing with it in the real world later on. I would love to have uh, an increasing amount of that in my future. So a lot of your listeners are in cities, I guess. How can you be regenerative in a city? Well, first of all, you have to kind of assume that anybody as an individual can be regenerative on their own, which I do not assume. Uh, it's all about the interactions and the connections within a larger system that is the, the thing that I would encourage people to strive for. I'm not so much an advocate of like, oh, I'm going to go off and be self-sufficient in this 
far off rural area and I'm going to forget the rest of society and I'm going to make this work for me. And it's not realistic. And a lot of people have tried it and found it unfulfilling because we derive almost all of us are our value as being important members of a larger collective, whether that community is connected because of physical proximity, like in a small town or connected over a shared vision, as is often the case in, you know, let's say educational or even theological communities that unite people via religion or uh, scientific theories or belief systems. It's all beautiful and, it, and people really derive, especially myself, personal value and meaning from playing an important role in advancing a concept that's larger than my own individual efforts. And cities offer a unique opportunity for that because there's just so many people that you could potentially collaborate with and access and, and, um, and, and co-create with in a small space. It's the reason why there's so much innovation and invention and progress that come from these areas because you're forced to find ways to interact with, tolerate and, and flourish with people with very different cultural backgrounds and languages. And, I mean, these have always been melting pots of ideas and, and progress. Uh, I think there are unique potential in city that, that only in the modern context have really become accessible. And if we look at it as an individual, what can I do myself to make my own life regenerative? We're missing the bigger potential, which really comes from the collaborative uh, energies and, and, and ideas that are, that are possible in those types of larger communities. At the same time, don't get me wrong, I've lived in cities, really big cities like Manila in the past, and uh, I feel overwhelmed and I often feel extremely lonely being around so many people with so little connection and intimacy. And so I, I sympathize with that kind of burnout and feeling that this is not an environment in which I can really connect. Uh, that I've chosen a different path for my life. But we're at a point where we're getting on like 60, maybe even 70% of the world's population is going to be living in urban and suburban centers within the next 30, 50 years. And so we need to look for opportunities to create more meaningful connections rather than the disconnection. The, the disconnection that is so easy to fall into when you just become an anonymous face in a mass of millions of people in a small area. I don't claim to have solutions for that, but I do encourage people to start really small because when you try and take on things at scale before stress testing them about how they work out on a, on a smaller, much more manageable and much more safe to fail scale, uh, it's, it's overwhelming and it's, it's setting expectations that are almost guaranteeing your disappointment or failure. So, I mean, how many people in cities know their neighbors? Do you know the person who lives on the apartment block right next to you? Yeah, I'm getting nods for no. And like, I live in an apartment right now. I know some of my neighbors. I do not spend a lot of time with them. I don't feel good about that. But I'm also in the process of moving, so I make excuses which are not really justifiable for not making better efforts at getting to know them. And at this point, it's kind of too late. So eh, I screwed up. I'll have to do better next time, you know. But it's those little steps of making a connection of the people who live next to you. Like, would you prefer to, in an emergency situation, always rely on 911 or emergency services with no face? Or would it be nice if you could 
knock on the door next to you and know that that person cared about you and was invested in your well-being and would come and show up if you needed something. I would prefer to rely on that, at least, you know, in any capacity that, that you could. I mean, maybe they're not a medical professional, fine. But there's so many things that come up in our lives that can be solved by just having good neighbors around or decent connections with people who are within proximity. And I would really put my efforts into starting there rather than thinking like, oh, how can this city become regenerative? Goodness, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. But start with your apartment block. Start with your neighborhood. Start with your school or your kid's school or, you know, something manageable. And you're likely to make friends and find opportunities that you would never know until you started to make those connections. That's where I would start. I'm curious, who or what do you consider to have been your biggest influences along your journey? And uh, perhaps also, who has been a notable mentor to you? And how did you go about acquiring those mentors? Oh, I, this is a lovely question, because this gives me the opportunity to, to express my deep gratitude for some people who have been really influential to me. And I, there's no way I would be in a position that I am now, or at least the parts that I'm proud of, without the assistance from these people. So number one is my sister. My sister is my best friend, and though she is younger than me, she has had an outsized influence on my mental and spiritual and uh, type of growth and my growth as a more mature person because she's way more smart and mature than I am and has helped to push me into growing up a little bit more and being a more compassionate person. Uh, and I'm so grateful for, for having that kind of uh, guidance and deep friendship that can only come from, from a sibling relationship. And certainly my brothers as well, even though we haven't been as close in the past years, like I consider myself a, a decently well-traveled, well-read and, and fairly interesting person. And I also consider myself to be the least interesting member of my family. And they're constantly pushing me to try harder, be better and, and follow some of their incredible examples. Uh, uh, some of them have children. Some of them don't, uh, but they, they have always been an example for me, even though they're all younger than me, uh, as, as how I could grow. And, and that's just a deep personal level. If we're talking professionally, uh, I would say one of my closest mentors, especially in the last handful of years, is a guy named Charlie Rendell. And he is just a wonderful, compassionate, incredibly talented and dedicated person who was my mentor into bamboo building in Guatemala. He was the reason why I stayed there for a long time initially. And his mentorship initially was my interest in learning a new building technique and material that I could use and very quickly evolved into something much deeper. Uh, he became a, a very close friend. I ended up living on the compound that he had built out of natural materials with his partner over a bunch of years and it was a beautiful experience. But one of the main things that I learned from him is how, as an outsider within, uh, with quite an amount of privilege, like he was very well educated and come from a well-to-do family in London, went to King's College in London and had all kinds of opportunities to work in companies and, and, and do well economically and succeed by uh, traditional standards decided to put most of his efforts into building up his local community in a rural village in indigenous Guatemala 
And the one thing that I will tell people that is the closest thing to a shortcut to how much his presence and his mentorship to the people who worked with him was, is that he had not one, not two, nor three, but four of his workers name their kids after him. That will give you a bit of perspective as to what he meant to his community. That's not a small thing. And people don't just do that because it's a show of, of, of respect. Like, he went the extra mile to invest in those people's lives, in their professional development. Many of them have gone on to work for other companies and have earning potential that they never had in that, in that town before. They didn't get formal educations. He, he trained them and gave them skills that, you know, some of them still work for him now as subcontractors rather than employees and, and have their own small businesses. And others have graduated on to professional skills with other companies, completely surpassing what their trajectory was before he took an interest and, and invested in them. And I mean, I'm always going to miss out some people because I have had the, the privilege of learning from so many wonderful people. Uh, um, it's late at night and I'm two drinks in, so I'm a little fuzzy <laughs> uh, on, on names. Um, but Carol Cruz, one of my mentors in natural plasters and finishes when I was doing my apprenticeship through the Cobb Cottage Company. Um, so many of the people that I've learned from and have later become friends from the podcast itself. Darren Doherty has been a real mentor of mine and a real influence on not just professional level uh, ability to, to do this kind of work, but just a genuinely nice guy that you would want to be around. Uh, who else? Some of my coworkers and close friends. I mean, this is going to end up sounding like an Oscar speech, so start playing the music. But, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. And, I'm, and all of the good qualities of me are a product of good teaching and people who have taken an interest in, and coaxed me along the way. Mentorship is extremely powerful and valuable in life. And if you're looking to advance or grow as a person, I highly recommend that you, you make the effort to find a mentorship in your life. Yeah. Nice. Do you have any advice to people who perhaps are uh, feeling like they're not, like they don't have mentorship, how they might go about finding this? I don't know if there's like a, a process or a path that I can recommend. My, my mentors have come to me both in, in formal pursuits, like Carol Cruz was a part of my apprenticeship that I paid money for to learn about natural building and it was one of the steps along that journey. And others came out from uh, reaching out directly to people that I admired and asking if I could study with them or learn with them. And then that sometimes uh, I learned that like, oh, this person has a lot of skills and knowledge, but I don't care to be around them. Our personalities don't mix. And others have been like, oh, wow, this person not only is an incredible practitioner or, or builder or teacher or whatever, but we have a deep connection as friends and I really admire them as a, as a person. It's usually those that have blossomed into longer term mentorships because there's been a deeper connection and things that we care about uh, that bring us together in life beyond just, just professional pursuits. Yeah. So, so be open, ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that you admire and flattery will get you a long way. Let them know that you appreciate what they do and that you, you admire some aspect of, of something that you've observed. And 
people are pretty good about opening up to that. And it's a, it's a good doorway into building deeper relationships. Yeah. Great. Uh, okay, I have a question. Let me just read. Um, okay, so this was potentially going to be a closing question. There might be more to come. But uh, what do you wish... Excuse me. Uh, what do you wish more people knew uh, about permaculture, regenerative practices, or maybe like, yeah, what do you, yeah, like, uh, I'm thinking, for example, like, what you were saying about, like, trees being, like, there's no excuse not to have trees, like, trees are free, we can graft trees. Yeah, 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 okay. I think I know what you're getting at here. So one of the things that I talk about, not only in these courses, but on the podcast and basically anywhere that people will listen to me, is that I truly believe in the potential for every single person on earth to interact with the natural world in a beneficial way. And there are a lot of cultural narratives and societal narratives right now that make us think that the best thing that we could possibly do is to reduce our consumption and our impact on the world, which hides an implication that our only potential is to be a damaging force here. And I don't believe that at all. I've seen too many examples to the contrary. And as I've learned more about how to understand and read landscapes, I've begun to recognize how easy it is to start on a path of stewardship and positive interaction with, with the natural world. And what I'm hoping to communicate through avenues like this podcast and through workshops like this and hopefully through other means in the future is that you don't need uh, an expensive or long-term degree and specialized education to be able to do this stuff. You don't need expensive equipment. You don't need a ton of experience. You can start with the smallest little steps anytime you want. People talk about, oh, I, I can't start producing my own food because I don't have any land. Man, grow sprouts in your kitchen. Uh, grow microgreens in a recycled uh, tray of plastic that the meat you bought came in. This is exactly what I did over the pandemic. It's like I just had a bunch of scrap stuff and some earth that I gathered from outside. And all right, it's not going to keep you alive. It's not going to provide the calories that you need. But every little step of something that you don't have to outsource to a destructive industry is one more thing that you get to take control of and that people can't sell to you because you're capable of providing it yourself. And, you know, the hot thing right now is producing your own food. That's great. It will always be relevant. But even if that's not your passion, like uh, source natural fibers and make your own clothes or uh, forego professional therapy if you can and, and, and build deep relationships with family members and, and friends that can lend an ear and, and help to counsel you so that hopefully you don't have to outsource it too much. I mean... There's just so many ways to provide the deep quality things that are often offered to us as surrogates that are sold in services that are, are devoid of the real quality that we're looking for. I think I gave an example earlier today of like back when we used to live with older generations, grandma didn't only cook and clean in the house. She was also a source of wisdom and guidance and helped you make decisions and could uh, look after the children, not only as like a babysitter or child care that you would otherwise hire out, 
but someone with a vested interest and love for the kid that they're looking after and and deep care for how they're grown and how they're brought up. You can't pay somebody to care like that. It can only come from the development of mutually beneficial relationships in which people are equally invested in the well-being and the outcome of the other people they interact with. And when we're missing those, we will look for them in ways that are cheap substitutes that we have to pay for every little thing that a, a, a healthy community and healthy relationships in our lives used to provide for us, which means we have to spend more and more of our time, most of us doing things that we don't particularly like in order to pay for all the stuff that we lost. And it was always free to get it back, but it takes time. It takes care and you can't buy that stuff. And I am so interested in finding ways for everybody to do their little part, even if it seems insignificant and it's not going to solve climate change or it's not going to you know, take down the oppressive regime, whatever the big existential problem we're grappling with is right now. Every one of these little efforts towards building higher quality connections, whether that's with the natural world, whether it's with your neighbors, whether it's with your own kids, I don't care. Like all of this is, is worthwhile. And collectively it amasses to something really meaningful that could, that could change the trajectory that our society is on. Is that a good ending question? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, yeah. Well, this was really fun. Like I said, like I, nobody ever interviews me like this. And, and I've, I, it's been a long time since I've considered and articulated the answers to some of these questions. So not only thank you guys for indulging me. This was super fun. Um, but thank you for being here in person. And, you know, these are some of these first steps that I'm talking about. We're making real connections and friendships that may have started from listening to this podcast from a distance or uh, seeing something that I posted online, but we're doing real work because of this. And this is what I see as the potential for putting out content. And, you know, sometimes it's just an exercise in ego, but sometimes it results in people coming from different parts of the world together to plant trees on a little farm that has high ambitions and <laughs> little budget, <laughs> you know? That's, that's, this is exactly what I'm hoping that will start to come more and more from these efforts. So thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right, well, there we have it. This was super fun to do and also an absolute joy to interact with and get to know these students and participants much better over the course of this week. And I'll definitely have more opportunities to come and join me on courses, both here at the Green Rebel Farm and hopefully on my new property very shortly. And as always, if you're interested in getting involved and in guiding this podcast into the future, giving me suggestions on topics to cover and new people to interview, just reach out to me either through email at info at regenerativeskills.com or through the Discord server. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. 
Well, so that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.